the Wit and Whiskey Cast. I'm DJ Gagnon here with my co-host with the most, Mark Rossetti. Hello, hello. Assuming I don't float away with all the rain in the background behind me. <laughs> no, you sound good, man. And uh, we're here to talk about a uh, topic near and dear to my heart. Um, we are here for our Pride episode. Pride part one, indeed. possibly. Who knows? If we're, we make it to next June, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, you know, uh, excited to do this. Uh, doubly excited, uh, something that I knew we were close, but I didn't put two and two together until I was doing some research over the weekend. But uh, when this airs, it will be only three days short of the actual anniversary of Stonewall. Oh, that's amazing. So uh, the 28th, June 28th is the Stonewall anniversary, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But so we're going to be damn close. We're recording this uh, a week early. And uh, when this drops for uh, all you lovely listeners, you'll just be three days away. So yeah. just listen up to this point, then stop, then listen to it on Monday. And then <laughs> right. On the anniversary. Exactly. All right. So now that you're listening during the Stonewall anniversary. Yes, <laughs> we can continue. <laughs> Mark, what you uh, what you been up to last week? Uh, you know, get, I actually got to spend a lot of time with the old man this weekend, which is, you know, good and bad, as always. <laughs> It was Father's Day, so, you know, we did the thing at his house, did the thing at Annie's house with her dad, which was cool. And then uh, just today, uh, if I sound like I'm dragging a little bit, we drove down to Harrisburg, which is about, well, actually it was outside of Harrisburg, but it's about two hours, ten minutes from the 1821 studios as the crow flies. Nice. And we ran into a world that time forgot. I mean, there was no cell phone service, there was no... Uh, signage on different roads. Google Maps uh, was convinced that the place we went to did not exist. Uh, And when we were driving home looking for a place to eat, there was nothing for the better part of 35 miles or so, except for not one, not two, but three Cracker Barrels. (laughs) Uh, So that was a little sketchy. Uh, but we survived, you know, we made it back and we did the errand we had to do and here we are drinking whiskey. So, I mean, that was fun. Otherwise, just uh, some work biz and, you know, just trying to catch up on my backlog of video games a little bit. And it doesn't help. PlayStation just keeps putting out more and more sales. Uh, I was able to pick up the Grid remake. It's downloading as we speak here. Nice. I was able to pick up the Grid remake for $10 for the Ultimate Edition with all the DLC and this and that. Because, hey, I'm a cheap Italian, so 10 bucks for a game. I'll try. I'll get $10 worth of fun out of it. I don't care if it sucks. <laughs> what about you, buddy? What have you been doing? Uh, man, it's just been kind of a whirlwind. Uh, we The mask restrictions are starting to let up a bit here and there in New Hampshire. So, um, it, you know, I've been dipping my toes into socializing again and, uh, it's been nice. Uh, you know, we're planning on going to the movies for the first time this week. Yeah. Annie and I were talking about it too. They're actually going to do a screening of the original Jurassic Park near us. Nice. And I think we're going to go. So it's scary, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're thinking about, it's like, Oh, we're going to go to the movies. Uh, Yeah. It was like, oh, yeah, we're going to go to the movies. And I was like, oh, no, are we going to the movies? Yeah, it's like, okay, all right, yeah, we, we can do that. That's a thing, okay. Yeah. But other than that, I got to see my dad for Father's Day this weekend, and that was nice. Um, I got to see some family that I hadn't seen in a while, and 
It was just, uh, it's been, a, it was a good weekend. It was a long week. Uh, it's only Monday, but it already seems to be a long week, but um, all, all good things, I think. Oh, I did start the next cocktail liquor infusion. Oh? Um, I, it might be a very bad idea. It might be a very bad idea. I'm making... Uh, it, the ultimate end to this experiment is to make a liqueur or a cordial that tastes like strawberry shortcake. But in order All to... All right, s- I'm, I'm intrigued. In order to start it, I have to make sweet milk liqueur. So mm. I, I've got milk suspended with vodka and sugar and some lemons, and it's just going to hang out in my basement for 10 days. And then I'm going to open it up and strain it a bunch of times, and hopefully it won't be nasty. I mean, it's one of those things, I probably wouldn't like it, but I would try it. I'm intrigued. It's supposed to kind of be, you know, uh, sweet and milk, so you get, like, the the whipped cream, the Cool Whip for... uh, for strawberry shortcake, it's supposed to be a little malty, so that that might get me the shortcake side of things. And then I'll infuse it after 10 days with fresh strawberries, and that'll get me the strawberry part. So I'm hoping it comes out tasting like dessert and not like nasty milk. 50-50 shot. I yeah. like those odds. Pretty much. But uh, what are you drinking this week? Well, I've decided to weigh in to what is apparently a very controversial debate on the internet. I am sampling uh, Buffalo Trace, more specifically Buffalo Trace Single Barrel Select, which we will get into in a minute, the different levels. And Buffalo Trace is a very hot topic, I guess right now, but over the last several months for two reasons. Number one, depending on where you live, at least in America... It can either be impossible to get, or there's just bottles and bottles and bottles and bottles and bottles of it. And there seems to be geographic shortages. Um, The Pacific Northwest and a little bit further in Colorado, Idaho, you know, Oregon, Washington, they seem to be drowning in bottles of it. Whereas in the South, and especially in... uh, our area, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, it's very difficult to come by. Texas seems to be hit or miss, depends on what part of Texas you go to. But So either you've you know never seen a bottle or you just can't get rid of them. Also, there's an argument over whether or not it is really, really, really good or it's uh, fodder for another one of our Hot Takes episodes, whether or not it's just horrifically overrated. <laughs> And the price point for the regular stuff is basically the uh, juxtaposition of the argument. I mean, the regular stuff varies between 28 and like $32 a bottle, give or take. And so you have a group of people online that are like, well, of course it's terrible. It's cheap. And it's like, well, no. And then you have some people online that are like, well, it was good. You know, it's good. And it's, it's really good bang for your buck. It's not the best stuff in the world, but for the money, it's fantastic. You can't get anything good for that price aside from this. And then you have the diehards that are like, well, it was good when it was $25 a bottle. But that extra $5, it's not worth it. That's nothing. Yeah. I know. 
so, you know, you have all that. Uh, when I was looking through various reviews to just look at some of the arguments, it's like everything on the internet. It goes to extremes. I found a review on a website that I won't plug because they don't deserve the clicks where the, uh, I hesitate to call him a gentleman, but where the gentleman decided to compare it to Bud Light. Uh, saying that it's very popular, it's very cheap, but it's really terrible and nobody should drink it. Huh. Uh, to that I say that, you know, I don't understand why he's writing liquor reviews because clearly he's a 14-year-old who broke into his dad's liquor cabinet and doesn't know what he's drinking. <laughs> so get, step away from the computer and leave it to the professionals, okay? Uh, you have a few different levels. You have the regular Buffalo Trace. You have what I'm drinking, the single barrel select, which is not a true... Single barrel. It's kind of a gimmick that they do with stores. They do store lines. So this is through the Pennsylvania Liquor Monopoly, or I'm sorry, the Fine Wine and Good Spirits stores. Uh, Warehouse Liquors also has a set. Uh, there's a uh, single barrel select for a store chain in Texas. It's just sort of a mid-range gimmick. And it supposedly all comes from one single barrel. What I'm drinking supposedly came from barrel 110 for whatever the fuck that's worth. <laughs> uh, overall, I really like it. I think it's good. Um, I think some of the people on the higher end go a little nuts, but I think the people that say it's terrible, they don't know what the fuck they're drinking. Uh, it's really good coppery color. It has a uh, sort of rye bite to it, even though the mash bill is very, very little rye. Uh, it, you know, you get little wisps of sort of nutmeg and cinnamon and it has like a weird wood blend to it. So it almost, you can almost think for a second you're drinking like apple cider, but at the same time, you still get the corn mash, you still get the rye bite, you still get the al alcohol taste. Huh. Uh, and at the end it gets... Pretty, a little bit spicy. You get some peppercorns. You get some different wood notes. Uh, and it just gets a little bit of spiciness to it. They claim that, you know, some of the reviews say that it's fruity. If you swish it around, if you chew it, if you do this and that. I couldn't taste, I mean, aside from the little bit of apple, spicy cinnamon thing, I couldn't taste any real fruit fruit. But other people claim they can. Maybe they have a more refined palate. I also don't like to gargle my whiskey. So there's that. Uh, <laughs> You know, you, that's just me personally. You don't, you know, suck but air over it through your teeth. No, no, you know, I don't chew it. I don't, I don't do any of that. Oh, okay, um, but it's really good. I recommend it. Uh, I, it doesn't have uh, an age statement, but it's the general consensus is that it's either seven or eight years, but they can't actually say that because it doesn't have an age statement. And I don't actually know how much the single barrel select costs because this. Bottle was acquired for me by friend of the show, IT Dave. Shout out, Dave. Appreciate it. Uh, I gave him $35 for it. I don't know if he lost money on the deal or not. <laughs> so Fair. if you could find it in Pennsylvania, it's pretty hard. That's why he picked it up for me. He goes, you need to review this. And I'm like, I can't find it. He goes, yes, you can here. So uh, shout out, Dave. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I, what about you, brother? What are you drinking this week? Uh, well, before I tell you, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole in the background here, and um, I looked up Buffalo Trace because I had never heard of it. I don't think we have it in New Hampshire. Um, but they're apparently the distillery that puts out Sazerac rye. Yes. 
Yes, and, that is another one of their brands. Yeah, uh, and then I found that uh, you can get a bottle of the Sazerac 18-year-old straight rye for $2,500. Hey, there you go. So I will never be drinking that particular blend. But under the Buffalo Trace logo, I haven't found it anywhere because I can't find the regular stuff, but under the Buffalo Trace logo, they actually sell a kosher rye, hmm. which I'd be very interested in trying. What makes it kosher? I don't know. I, I would like to study it more. Maybe I, how it's prepared? I'm, I'm not sure. Is, does normal rye involve bacon? Well, there's a little bit more to kosher than that, but... <laughs> Before we damn ourselves to hell in yet another religion... <laughs> And the tally sheet's getting pretty long, let's be brutally honest. It is, it is. So uh, this week, I decided to lean completely into pride awesomeness. Uh, So I'm not actually drinking whiskey this week. Shock, 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 I know. Uh, I am drinking a recipe that was created by, uh, it's a cocktail, created by uh, Mel Albaladeo. And I'm probably butchering that name, uh, who is a bartender at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village, where the gay liberation movement started. Uh, so it, uh, it, the cocktail is called the Off the Wall uh, in honor of Stonewall. And it's a uh, it's kind of a play on a Cosmo, um, uh, but it's got some really cool stuff in it. It's an ounce and a half of Stoli Cucumber. Uh, half an ounce of pomegranate juice, half an ounce of simple syrup, half an ounce of lime juice, uh, muddle some fresh ginger in there, uh, throw in six grinder shakes of white peppercorn, uh, and then shake with four fresh mint leaves, uh, pour over into a coupe glass, uh, garnish with some cucumber, some mint, and some candied ginger. Uh, And it's pretty damn good. Uh, I kind of turned my nose up a little bit at the white peppercorn, but it's pretty tasty and it makes it kind of complex and and wonderful. So uh, I definitely recommend it uh, off the wall and shout out to Stonewall. Yeah, I was actually, I had three quote unquote pride cocktails for lack of a better term that I was originally going to make. And that was going to be my first choice, but I wasn't able to get to the liquors, well to the grocery store this weekend to buy you know, any of the ginger or the cucumber or anything I needed. But I'm glad I didn't because you did it. So, yeah, so. yeah <laughs> it I ended could up working not, out well. I could not for the life of me find the ginger and I was going to get a new nub. And luckily I, I had some like wrapped up in, in the back of my fridge that was still fresh. So, Yeah, I'm not that daring when I cook. So I, I, I would have had to go grab some. But it's, uh, it's good and, you know... Uh, we're going to be, we'll be talking about Stonewall in a little bit. So I think it's pretty cool that one of us did it. So exactly. Yay. Yeah, it, it is. It is pretty damn tasty. I, I'm a sucker for a good Cosmo or for a good Cape Cotter. And, uh, this kind of amps it up a little bit. I never really thought about using pomegranate juice instead of cranberry juice. It's pretty great. Yeah, and I actually need pom- still need pomegranate juice to do my Belmont Jewel. I actually did start writing the blog post, folks, for real. I just <laughs> two, three out of the four parts of it are done. I just got to get pomegranate juice to make the Belmont Jewel and maybe to make an off the wall. So it's it's on the list. It's fine. I feel like most of our blog posts are like a month late, anyways. <laughs> well, it, we're, consistency gets you in the Hall of Fame, and we're very consistent. So. Mm-hmm. 
exactly. What do you got for uh, whiskey news for us? All right. Well, I picked uh, the this specific article for three reasons. Number one, if you just go looking for whiskey news this week, it is absolutely dominated by news out of the uh, G7 conference last week with all the world leaders, and it mostly has to do with more tariffs on various types of whiskey. And we already did two whiskey news segments on that. I'm done. I'm just I, I'm done talking about taxes. I'm done talking <laughs> about international trade. Uh, I under, It's very important, yes. A lot of people's lives, you know, and payrolls hinge on it, yes. But I'm just, I, the more I read it either way, I just get depressed. So I'm done with that. Uh, that was number one. We're not going to do that. Number two, we're going to be talking about some heavy stuff in a little bit. So I thought we could use a little bit of levity on the top, maybe kind of even it out a little bit. So this is kind of a funnier one. And number three, you know, you talk about age statements, you talk about 12-year-old, 14-year-old, 18-year-old, 25-year-old, et cetera, et cetera. How about a whiskey that is proud to be a year old? Well. And I have found you the uh, self-proclaimed world's first pandemic-born whiskey. Oh, my God. And this is a new brand called Old Man Liver. Yes, I said liver, like the organ. (laughs) And from their own statement, they claim that it's oaky, it's smoky, it's a tiny bit spicy. It's distinctive, yet smooth. And all the while, it's still 10 more proof than Jack. Uh but what really makes this going later on is their official press release, okay? Now, I, if you bear with me here for a minute, DJ, I want to read this for you verbatim. Yes, please. And, and this is not something that I have made up or embellished in any way. This is their actual press release from their new distillery. <clears throat> old man Liver and his old lady were having a great day of debauchery, their favorite pastime, while drinking on Friedman Street in the neon-lit old strip area of downtown Vegas. After a night of multiple strip clubs, bars, casinos, Old Man Liver was drunk on the ground in front of a white castle. He proclaimed loudly his love for a good old American whiskey, but lamented how the drink in his hand wasn't strong or flavorful. And that's when his old lady decided that Old Man Liver must, all capital letters underlined, have his own whiskey. And now, after a year of overindulgence and trial and error in order to get the most perfect flavor, Old Man Liver and his old lady's dream is now your reality. (laughs) Uh, It retails for uh, 750 mil, uh, $38.99, and is available on their website. If you just Google Old Man Liver Whiskey, it'll come right up. I... I'm looking at this website, dude. This this whole <laughs> this whole thing is pretty grody. I mean, look, I have done some things in my life, you know, especially with races and different things. You have timetables. You have eight months to build a car, ten minutes to build a car, and you know it's going to be bad. And you go and you show up anyway, and you do X, Y, and Z. I can't fathom the concept of a whiskey that was not only distilled, aged, and bottled all within, what, 14 months or whatever the pandemic was, but designed, formulated, created? I mean, how many years does, you know, 
freaking Johnny Walker take how the episode when we were talking about Jane Walker, how many years was that in development? Yeah. We went through the whole trial and error with that. This is 14 months. Fuck it. Send it. Let's drink it. <laughs> Sweet Jesus, dude. I, well, I don't like this website. I'm going to stop looking at it. Um, I'm, I am actually getting paid this week. If, if I haven't looked to see if they actually ship to Pennsylvania. If they do, I may feel froggy. And take a shot because this is the ultimate, you know, Wallio. Fuck it. You know, you say I can't do it, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> um, oh, wait, hang on. We cannot deliver to the states of. Hey, Pennsylvania's not on that list. New yeah. Hampshire's not on the list either. I'm not getting it. I do not support this man. I, I might, just because I get a kick out of him calling his wife his old lady. That is old school. You know, I haven't heard somebody, you know, no one that isn't a baby boomer, I don't think I've ever heard call uh, their wife their old lady. So I get a, I get a kick out of that. I can't call her. Yeah, I'm older than her. See, the, the, see, Annie's 11 years older than me, so mathematically I could call her that, but then I would be dead. Yeah. Uh, but all right, so that's that. Take us away to tools of the trade for this week. Yeah, so this week I'm talking more about a technique than a tool, but there is a tool involved. Uh, so I'm talking about the concepts of muddling and expressing this week. Uh, so uh, expressing is that kind of cool thing. Wait, no, that's what we do every week on the show. It's we true, express. it's true, it's true. But expressing oils. So uh, expressing is what you see a bartender do whenever they make like a you know an old-fashioned... Um, and they, they kind of take that orange peel and they squeeze it over the drink. And if you're looking closely, you'll see this little cloud of something going over your drink, and then they rub it around the rim and they drop the orange peel in and they hand it to you, and it's delicious. Uh, so expressing, what they're doing is they're taking that, that citrus peel and they're pointing the, you know, the skin side out, pith side towards them, and they pinch it over the drink, and they're... They're expressing the oils out. They're pinching out all of the little oils in the skin. And really, I mean, it's not going to add much in terms of flavor to your drink. It's a tiny cloud of oil. Like a third of it dissipates off in the air anyways. But what they're doing is they're, they're engaging your, your sense of smell. So they, you, you express the oil over the cocktail. You rub it around the rim. And then when the... The glass touches your lips and you start drinking, you, you inhale, you smell that, that nice citrus oil. Uh, for a Sazerac, it would be you know, lemon. For uh, an old-fashioned, it would be an orange. And it, it's just making the entire uh, experience of drinking that cocktail better. Um, and that kind of gets us into muddling as well. So uh, if you've ever seen uh, a bartender building a cocktail in a mixing glass and then they take this you know this wooden ramrod and just start pounding something in their glass that that's a muddler there's a lot of different kinds of muddlers uh, i tend to prefer the bamboo muddlers because they're they're cheap they're easy to get if they wear out you just you know if they're biodegradable you can get a new one um the my favorite muddlers actually have uh uh spikes on the bottom so it kind of helps you tear up into whatever you're muddling. And generally, muddling is used for the same reason that you would express oils over a cocktail, but it's to get the flavors out of the oils instead. So generally, uh, when you're muddling, you'll, you'll 
get your your sugar uh, or your your simple syrup into the glass, and you'll throw in maybe some citrus, maybe some mint, maybe some basil. You know, herbs and 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 fruit. Uh, you might muddle like berries if you're making uh, like a blueberry mojito or something like that. Um, it's really good for kind of just uh, tearing stuff up and really quickly releasing juices and oils and, and essences into your drink. And you generally do it with something else in there. Um, so if you are building an old-fashioned, uh, they say the best way to do it is to kind of muddle uh, your, your cherry and your, uh, your sugar cube together and your bitters together, and you kind of get all of those juices and stuff in it. Um, my apologies if you don't put a cherry in your old-fashioned, but I do, and they're delicious, so shut your mouth. Um, so uh, when you, you muddle, you're really, you're kind of grinding out that sugar. Uh, for a mojito, it's the same sort of thing. You muddle the mint, and you're expressing all of those uh, mint oils and essences into the cocktail before you add in your your liquors and your juices and your mixes and your other things and then you shake it all up with some ice and really aerate it. So that that's what I uh, want to talk about today. So with the cocktail I made today, it has some fresh ginger in it. So I uh, threw the some some sliced ginger, fresh ginger root, threw it in with some simple syrup, muddled it up, and then I, I tossed in everything but the mint. I muddled it some more, tossed in the mint, and then I shook it. And depending on the cocktail, you might muddle the, the mint with the sugar, you might muddle the fruit. Uh, it all kind of depends on, on what you're looking for. But it's a really good way of kind of pre-gaming your shake or pre-gaming your stir, depending on uh, what kind of cocktail you're, you're making. So muddling and expressing, it's, it's awesome. I enjoy it, and uh, there were times I have an old-fashioned. I, I do enjoy cherry in it as well, for the record. So I'll get on that, that side of the fence as well. Yeah, yeah. I if I can get it, I like to do a fresh cherry. But um, uh, if you if you can get your hands on a jar of Luxardo cherries, they're very good. They're also quite expensive for a jar of fucking cherries, but worth it. I find it interesting. I didn't. I mean, I don't drink old fashions very often, but I didn't realize there was controversy over whether or not people put cherries in them. Yeah, some people don't. Some people do. Um, some people say the cherry should only be a garnish. So it all depends yeah. on, on what you, I like a little bit more fruit in my drinks. I like a little bit more sweetness. Um, it, if you want to, with an old fashioned experiment with different kinds of cherries, uh, a, a good sour cherry in an old fashioned is good. And you can kind of taste test as you go, just like you would in cooking. You can increase the sugar a little bit if you want to offset it, but it gives it a nice flavor profile. Black cherry old fashioned. It's going to happen once the farmer's market opens up around here. Yeah, I need I'll to take an afternoon. Cherries. I, I need to take an afternoon off. Exeter near here has a really good farmers market, but they're only open on Thursdays. Yeah, but that yeah. brings us to the best topic ever, Mark. It, it's Pride it's Month. Definitely, it's definitely the biggest topic I think we've undertaken in the what ten months now that we've been dabbling with this podcast. It is. So how we want to do this? You want to start the history, or should should I uh, explain my bona fides? 
Well, I mean, I think I think your stuff is really the main event. You know, what we what we talked about uh, off air. I mean, I am the token cis white male. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, in order to try to make, you know, I don't want to say make myself relevant. That's not the right word. I'm going to take over this. Damn it! Pride <laughs> Month's about me. No, no, no. Uh, but I thought I would look at it from a historian's point of view. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, you know, talk about some of the early stuff, uh, not just Stonewall and the beginning of Pride, but some of the early uh, pro-LGBT organizations, just what it was like to be gay in America in the, you know, the 50s, 60s, 40s. And then once we get the boring high school lecture out of the way, (laughs) you could come in with the relevant day-to-day stuff. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. Let's get into the history first, because I'm really excited. I am looking at this list of topics, and uh, despite being a member of the Pride community for quite a while, there's definitely a lot of history I don't know. So take it away, man. Well, uh, as I often say with my work, you know, uh, lecturing and uh, giving tours and creating exhibits is all well and good, and I enjoy it, but the thing I enjoy the most is the research. So I had a uh, lot of fun this weekend doing some research on this, because I learned quite a bit as well. So, uh, as we already talked about at the top of the uh, hour, you know, June 28th, 1969, that was uh, the Stonewall incident, the Stonewall riots, the Stonewall revolution, depending on uh, what uh, sources you read, depending on what I don't want to say side of the fence you fall under, but those are the main names for them. Mm. But really, the modern uh, gay liberation, the modern uh, uh, coming out on a national level began almost 20 years earlier, over 20 years earlier. Uh, The first real uh, LGBT organization on Nationwide was the uh, Mattachine Society. And I do hope I'm pronouncing that right. I believe I am, because it's French. But if I'm not, just you know, shoot me an email and I'll correct myself later on. Uh, and that was founded by Harry Hay in uh, Los Angeles and in Southern California. And it was very interesting because uh, it was founded in 1948 originally, although its official incorporation date is 1950, but they began meeting in 1948 under the name The Society of Fools. And originally, the Mattachine Society, they were sort of like the Masons or your Rotary or your Kiwanis Club. You could sort of franchise and get chapters in all different parts. Your city could have a chapter of the Mattachine Society, which was very cool. And they had four tenants, which I pulled right from their literature. And most of them are pretty, you know, normal, what you would think for a pro-LGBT group. Unify homosexuals isolated... that are isolated from their own kind, lead the more socially conscious homosexual to provide leadership to the whole mass of social variants, and to assist gays who are victimized daily as a result of national oppression. What I thought was interesting was tenet number two, to educate homosexuals and heterosexuals towards, towards an ethical homosexual culture paralleling that of the Negro, the Mexican, and the Jewish peoples. Wow. So one of their stated goals was to make uh, homosexuals a recognized minority in America, like people of color, like uh, uh, Latinos, like anyone, any other group. We are going to be another recognized minority. 
And when you first look at that, it is just so shocking from our point of view, 71 years later. Or 50 years, 51 years later. Yeah. I can do math. Um, <laughs> I can do math. But the reason for that is you have to go back to the 1940s and the 1950s. And being homosexual in America was not fun, to put it very, very mildly. Uh, many people learn in school about the Red Scare, about McCarthyism, about the just rampant hunting down of communists, real or imagined, throughout America. And what paralleled that was also, if they couldn't slander you as a communist, oftentimes McCarthy and people of his ilk would try to slander you as a homosexual. Uh, there was the famous McCarthy quote, and I, I do apologize for the language, but it is McCarthy. If you are against McCarthy, he talked about himself in the third person, you're either a communist or a cocksucker, and they're all the same to me. Woof. And this, no. And this led to what historian David Johnson refers to as the lavender scare, Uh, because you would often see in these congressional hearings, and you can go on YouTube, a lot of the McCarthy hearings are on YouTube, Uh, these senators not just McCarthy, but Everett Dickinson and a few other people, they weren't going to come out on national TV and just explicitly call someone a homosexual. They weren't quite that crass, despite the previous quote I just said. So they would often refer to lavender lads. If they wanted to, you know, insult your masculinity, they would call you a lavender lad. And... So because of this, you had the post office would keep track of the addresses of people who maybe received mail. You know, there were the the Mattachine Society, other different groups like ECHO, um, uh, these pro-LGBT groups. They would send out literature, magazines, pamphlets, newsletters. The post office would keep a list of all the addresses of these people that were receiving these magazines. Clothing stores would just, you know, sort of jot down, hey, that guy came in and he bought a lot of dresses. Does he have a wife? Does he have a daughter? Is he just buying women's clothes for any particular reason? And uh, the FBI was creating files on thousands and thousands and thousands of people that they deemed to be homosexuals, which is ironic because the FBI at the time was under the leadership of J. Edgar Hoover who, as every historian will tell you, was, as the saying goes, so far in the closet he was finding Christmas presents. <laughs> oh, man. Um, he, you know, and he was angry at himself. He was, you know, he had a lot of repressed feelings. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know the reasoning behind it. But he, he was a closeted gay man. He had a lover that he hid. And so because of that, he kept loads and loads of files on homosexuals and used it to blackmail and get what he needed. Um, they also kept lists of establishments and it wasn't just, you know, quote unquote gay bars. It was just places that, Hey, these people don't openly discriminate against gays. They must be up to something. Um, different times cities would perform sweeps, which we'll talk about a little bit more when we get to Stonewall specifically, because in many places in America, it was just flat out illegal to be homosexual. And we're not just talking about, you know, sodomy laws or anything like that. 
they had a very intricate system nowhere near on the same level as Jim Crow. I don't want to compare it to that, but it was the same type of thing. We're not going to just make this specifically illegal. We're going to make so many laws that we're going to completely ostracize one group of people. Uh, For an example, in many cities, New York being one of them, it was illegal to sell alcohol to gay men. Can't drink. Uh, You know, just different things like that to discriminate against it. In 1952, the American Psychiatric Society uh, released its, you know, annual manual, its annual report, and it listed homosexuality as a mental disorder. Uh, you know, only, what, 70 years ago, folks, we're not, we haven't, you know, it's not that long ago. It's a snap of the fingers to historians. Oh, yeah. Um, Ten years after that, in 1962, there was a quote-unquote large-scale study of homosexuality in America that was used as the quote-unquote peer research to justify keeping it in listed as a disorder. So, you know, from uh, well over 10 years, uh, the American Psychiatric Association considered it a mental disorder. So, you know, there you go with that. Now, we'll get to Stonewall itself. Uh, The Stonewall Inn was a bar. It was in New York City, uh, 51st and 53rd Christopher Street. That was the address. And it was like many uh, gay bars in New York City in the late 60s. None of them were owned uh, by gay men or lesbians or any trans people. They, for the most part, were uh, owned by organized crime groups. Stonewall was owned by the Genovese family. And it really was a trade-off with a lot of these quote-unquote mob gay bars, which, you know, I hate that term, but that's what you see listed. They, the owners and the bouncers and the managers and the the hired goons, basically, looked down on the patrons. They were mean to them. They were insulting to them. They overcharged them, and they often watered down the drinks. But they ran the bars... They kept them safe from outsiders. And they often paid off the police to reduce the frequency of raids. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of 50-50. For example, uh, by 1966, the Genovese's were paying $3,500 a week to the New York City police. uh, Or I'm sorry, not a week, a month. $3,500 a month to the New York City police uh, to keep the Stonewall open. And, you know, the New York police referred to these payments as gayola instead of payola. That was their quote-unquote fun little term for it. They would go to get their gayola money. Uh, The Stonewall, of course, had no liquor license because it was illegal to sell liquor to gay men in New York City. Uh, The conditions in the Stonewall, let's be brutally honest, they were awful. Oh, yeah. There was no running water behind the bar. They just had giant metal tubs of water. You would have a drink. They would take your glass, dunk it in the water two or three times, send it right back into the rotation. There were no fire exits. The toilets overflowed almost nightly. Um, The Genovese's kept it pretty clean. There was no prostitution. There was no... um, you know, untold acts with minors. There was no drug sales, but they did do some black market trading and, you know, things like that. 
Um, interestingly enough, it was for a while the only gay bar in New York City where dancing was allowed. Mm-hmm. It had a very speakeasy atmosphere. Uh, the bouncer would actually open a peephole and would have to look at you. And there were two requirements to get in. You either had to know the bouncer personally or, and I quote, look gay. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Oh, I shouldn't be laughing, but I'm going to laugh <laughs> but or But that cry, was what so. the order was. <laughs> yep. Um... Had a $3 cover, which was pretty high for the 60s, if we're being brutally honest. Um, And it was officially listed as a bottle club because, again, they did not have a liquor license. While it was a dancing club, dancing was allowed. There was no dance floors. The interior was painted flat black. All the walls, the floor, the ceiling, everything was flat black. So it was dark in there constantly. And the reason why they did that was when they did get raided, because even though they were paying $3,500 a month, the police were still coming and raiding it, because again, everyone knew it was a gay bar, everyone knew it was a gay bar where dancing was allowed, and this was all illegal. So every so often, the police would have to come in and do a raid just to keep up appearances. So you had the flat black walls. When the raid would happen, they would hit the house lights, and that was a sign for everybody to stop touching each other. That was a sign for everyone to stop dancing, to do everything, and just hide. When the house lights came on in the middle of the day, that was bad. That meant there was a raid. It was usually about once a month, once every six weeks. And again, keeping with the speakeasy uh, gimmick, they had hiding hidey holes. They had secret panels behind the bar. They had cabinets, and that allowed them to keep extra liquor and to get running. Uh, The stone wall might get raided at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. By 1130, it was back open for business. Nice. Uh, the Genovese's were efficient, if nothing else. <laughs> so, um, you know, you have that. So now we'll talk about the raid on June 28th. Uh, two undercover policemen had snuck in. They gave the signal. They called for backup. It was about 1.30 in the morning that the policeman came in with a detective uh, Dec- Deputy Inspector Seymour Cy- Pine. He was the commanding officer. Uh, the house lights came on and people heard them yell, uh, police, we're taking the place. There was just over 200 people in the bar that night. Now, normally when the place is raided, everyone's lined up against the wall. You have to present an ID of some kind. This being the 60s, a lot of people gave their draft cards. And then a female officer would take, well, a male officer would take some people in the bathroom, but a female officer would take anyone dressed femininely into the bathroom to identify their biological gender. And anyone caught in drag was arrested. That was all, it was also illegal to cross-dress. That's what it was listed as on the, as the crime in 1969 was cross-dressing. Uh, likewise, it went both ways. If you were a woman who was considered to be dressed too uh, masculine, you were also arrested. The problem was on June 29th, it didn't quite go according to plan. While they were taking in the people that they were getting ready to arrest and you know making them ID themselves and taking them in the bathroom and booking them, they said to everyone else, all right, this is a raid. You're not arrested, but the place is closed. Get the hell out of here. And no one really left. 
they just sort of went outside and hung out. <laughs> and so now, you know, the police have the people they want to arrest. The police have the liquor that they are seizing from this place. It doesn't have a liquor license. But the paddy wagons aren't there yet. And that's how long ago this was. They still had paddy wagons. Mm-hmm. Like big old, old school paddy wagons. And so now they have to wait. And now you have this crowd outside. You have the police inside with people in handcuffs. And of course, this is Greenwich Village. This is New York City. Even though it's one thirty in the morning, people are still out. People are still milling about. And the crowd starts getting bigger on the outside and bigger and bigger and bigger. And now they're just tormenting the cops. They're throwing things. They're throwing insults. They're posing. Um, they're saluting. They're flipping the cops off. They're doing everything. And now the crowd's getting, you know, fucking rowdy. They're cheering. They're yelling. They're getting into it. Because you know how it goes. One person does something, then another person, then another person, then another person. Yeah. When the paddy wagons finally got there, they started to escort not just the people they were arresting out, but they're going to escort the mafia people out as well because these are people that are technically on their payroll. Well, the people that are arrested start to fight back. Woman in handcuffs just starts running away. Uh, Every time she runs away, they try to beat her down with billy clubs. She fights back. And this is a handcuffed woman. They're hitting her with clubs. They're hitting her with fists. She just keeps getting up, keeps swearing, keeps swinging at them over and over and over again. About five or six times it happened. And uh, finally, she got hit in the head uh, with a baton, and it dropped her. And that was the spark. That was when everybody said something. Just, just like we saw with George Floyd this year, you hear somebody said, why are you guys doing this? Why don't you do something? And that was it. So the crowd just starts going. They, they push back. They're going down. Now the cops realize what's going to happen, so now they're pushing forward, old-school movie style. They have their batons out, their trunnions. They're trying to take some order. A couple of the people that are in the paddy wagon, which was left uh, unguarded, allegedly, deliberately, depending on who you believe, they get out now. So now you have people in handcuffs running around. You have cops chasing them. You have cops pushing the crowd back. You have the crowd starting to riot. Um, you know, you hear by this point, mafia lieutenants have come and they're yelling at the man, the people in the bar working the bar saying, didn't you pay the cops this week? Of course, we did pay the cops this week. Oh, well, that's why we got raided. So it is absolutely chaos. And now if you read the contemporary reports, you're 200 people in the bar. By now, the whole crowd with police and everybody. Now it's close to 500 people. And they're losing the night. So now they fall back and they wait for the riot police. <laughs> And, you know, that didn't do very good because, of course, one, you, if you watch any video of anything that happens, riot police only escalate the situation. So uh, while the police are hunkered down waiting, garbage cans, bottles, rocks, bricks, they're just trashing the place, trying to get at the police. Finally, the riot police come and get it out. And I, I have a quote here, and this is a, an actual quote from a participant in the Stonewall riot. And uh, he does not give his name, but he's quoted in uh, David Carter's book, uh, Stonewall, the Riots that Sparked the Gay Revolution, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty famous book. And uh, the quote is, when did you ever see a fag fight back? Now, times were a changing. Tuesday night was the last night for all this bullshit. Predominantly, the theme throughout the night was this shit has got to stop. 
And that was it. That was finally it. Uh, now, of course, it didn't end that night. There was a second night of rioting because this was so big that the New York Times picked it up, the Post picked it up, the Daily News picked it up, the Philadelphia Inquirer picked it up. Uh, um, different groups picked it up. It wasn't just like the Mattachine Society or Echo or any of these other uh, pro-gay groups. The Black Panthers were in on it. Students for a Democratic Society, all of these uh, groups were in on it. So once again, uh, people were marching down Christopher Street. Uh, it was a little bit more frantic. It was about as violent as the previous evening. wasn't quite as angry because, you know, you didn't have an actual ongoing situation with the police. Uh, but uh, you had a whole second night of rioting. So by the end, you know, after that, it started to rain the third day, and that's what's kind of credited as petering it out for the third day was there was a big uh, rainstorm. What did this lead to? Mainstream national coverage, not just the next day, but for over a week afterwards. And this sprung up a whole bunch of other groups. Uh, because the Mattachine Society, which we talked about, that existed since 1948. Most people thought that they were just, they were too mild. And there also was the fact that, you know, we talked about McCarthyism, we talked about the Lavender Scare. Some early gay activists were actually communists. A lot of the Mattachine Society were actually communists. Oh, yeah. So that, that didn't help either. Uh, so now you have the Gay Liberation Front. You have the Gay Activists Alliance. You have all of these uh, new groups springing up in the year that followed. And then uh, next year, 1970, was the Christopher Street Liberation Day, which, of course, took place on June 28th, one year later. Uh, it was a big assembly. It was a peaceful assembly. And you had the earliest gay pride marches in uh, Los Angeles and Chicago, of course, they weren't called that then, but they are recognized as the first gay pride marches in U.S. history. And then by 1972, 1971 and 1972, you had proper, quote-unquote, pride days. Atlanta, Buffalo, Detroit, Washington, D.C., Miami, Minneapolis, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Los Angeles, all these places. Uh, gay pride parades, gay pride rallies, the way we think of them today, it only took two and three years in most places. That's how big of a trigger uh, Stonewall was. Amazing. Uh, June 20th, still celebrated today. June, uh, of course, is Pride Month because of Stonewall. And in 2016, uh, Barack Obama gave it a National Historic Monument. It's, uh, it's on the Register of National Historic Places now. It is a U.S. historic landmark, as it should be. Agreed. So that is the boring historical stuff <laughs> for Pride Day. <laughs> no, it's all fascinating. I mean, we could, we could do... 20 episodes on yes, like the history <laughs> of uh, you know the the rise of the gay liberation movement. I mean, we could do an entire episode just on Sylvia Rivera and Martha P Johnson and you know the uh, how basically the entire gay liberation movement uh, happened because of uh, you know black uh, drag queens <laughs> in yes. Greenwich Village. Like there's just so so much amazing history uh, and, and I, I mean, it, at some point we, we should, you know, maybe next year we can do an episode on like how, uh, we could get into like, you know, speakeasy culture and how that kind of was a safe haven for, for, you know, uh, gay rights and, and stuff like that. But it really is fascinating how physical walls and, you know, just 
they always make the joke with diamonds, right? Diamonds were never valuable. And then all of a sudden, uh, the beers and a bunch of other people in the cartel just started saying, no, we're not selling these to you anymore. They're valuable. And everyone believed it. Mm-hmm. When you put up walls, when you put up a club, it doesn't matter what the club is. Once it's exclusive, once it's there, it's, oh, okay, you know, I want to get in, want to do this. You look at a place like Stonewall, it was a safe place. You know, it was uh, a place for the community to go. Everyone else wanted to know what they were doing. Well, yeah. they have to be up to something. They have a, no, <laughs> like, you know, it's just a bar. Leave them alone. <laughs> exactly. All right. So the, let's get to the, to the meat of this episode. That's so, right. The piece de resistance. Yeah. All right. So hi, listeners. You know me. I'm your host, DJ. Um, but let me reintroduce myself. Um, I have been out as bisexual since 2007. Uh, I was my, my sophomore year, junior year of college in between there. Uh, and I've been out as non-binary since uh, December of 2020, which is very recent. Uh, it's only been about six months. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about my journey and, and what it's like being a member of the community and, and how I, you know, kind of grew up. So I, uh, my gender identity and my sexuality live firmly in the gray areas of the community. Um, you, you can't get much more zero, 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 zero than being a bisexual, bisexual non-binary person. Um, and it's a really interesting place to be because I never realized there was something different about myself until people started pointing it out. So, I mean, I grew up and when, it, you know, a lot of the people around me were getting interested in the opposite sex, I was like, oh, boys and girls are cool, and I, like, I find both of them attractive, and I never thought to question it until, you know, I got a little bit older, and I realized, oh, there aren't any other guys who seem to be interested in guys, too. There aren't any other girls who seem to be interested in girls, too. Maybe I'm a bit different, and you kind of especially in the U.S., you know, we've kind of got this puritanical ethic that our country is based on, and we, you know, we very much get conditioned about heteronormative, gender binary, gender roles. And it's, uh, at, at points, it's, it's quite insidious. Um, and I was very lucky when I came out. I have parents who are very loving and were able to uh, see past, you know, the initial concern and worry that their son was coming out as bisexual and what the hell does that mean? And so I, I came out, I, I think I was 20. I had known that I was bi ever since I was a little kid. Uh, like, I distinctly remember being, like, three or four and my dad works in a field where back then it was still very much, you know, you would go over your boss's house for, for dinner. And I remember uh, that my boss's son, uh, my dad's boss's son was like a teenager. 
and I just was obsessed. I just, he was so pretty. And I, I was like, all right, boys and girls are cool, and I'm good with that. And so I knew since a very early age that I was bi. And depending on what your own journey is, listener, um, there's, uh, there's like 50 different terms for gender easily uh, in, within the community. And, and sexuality is, is pr- the same. Um, I have had the debate many times with people uh, over, you know, the difference between bisexuality and pansexuality. And um, there's, a, there's a debate in the community right now that those of us who identify as bisexual, um, we are transphobic. We, we exclude people who are transgender or gender fluid from, from our attraction and therefore, you know, that's, that's bad. And there, there are some efforts within the community to kind of get rid of bisexuality and just let it, let pansexuality kind of take over both terms. And I've had this conversation so many times, and I think it really depends on your perspective and your journey. I don't identify as pan um, because that term didn't exist when I came out. And growing up, I mean, I, all through my childhood, I knew that I was different than anybody else. And the thing that I had to hide was that I was attracted to boys. And that was the thing you couldn't talk about. That was the thing that, you know, I, I love my family, but I do have a fairly conservative family. And up until very recently, nobody talked about that kind of thing. Um, my parents were fairly forward thinking when I came out they were both that they both got around and, and were very good about it and I never really had to deal with the rejection from my parents but it, you know teachers and you know coaches and and uh, senseis and and uh, there were a lot of people in my life that just could not handle that conversation they just they didn't have, they had a very narrow worldview and that was, that was it. So for me, the thing that I had to fight against all through my childhood, all through four years of Catholic high school, uh, up until I, I came out was that I had to figure out how to be okay being attracted to, to men. And that's why I identify as bisexual. I, of course have attraction to people who are all across the gender binary, but my journey wasn't that. You know, maybe in 20 years, the language will change enough and I'll identify as pan, but I identify as bi because the thing that was wrong that I had to learn how to make right in my own head in order to come out in a society that was very heteronormative was that I was attracted to men as well as women. So that's why I identify as bisexual. That's kind of a, it's an interesting debate in, in the community, but if you identify as pan, great. If you identify as bi, great. Just don't hate people because we got enough of that before we came out. Um, so I, being bisexual to me is important. It's part of my identity. Um, 
it really doesn't, I mean, I'm married uh, to a woman and Holly is wonderful. So I, you know, it, the going out and trying to figure out how to date it, that's not part of my journey anymore, but it's still, you know, you, you get married, you're dating somebody, attraction doesn't go away. It's still part of who you are. So, uh, growing up as bisexual, coming out as bisexual, I, I had a very good coming out story. I mean, I was, anybody who knows me knows that I worry about everything and I try to plan, plan everything. And I, agonized. you know, <laughs> you plan things. Yeah. No. Uh, and I, I agonized over this decision for all four years of Catholic high school, all two years before I came out. And when I finally came out, I think I had one person in my life who was at all surprised. I, I came out to my parents and my mom was like, yeah, yeah, of course I love you. You're, that's great. And I came out to my dad and my dad was like, um, give me a minute. I love you. And then a week later he came back and went, uh, I'm not used to this and I'm, I want to learn more, but if anybody hurts you, I'm going to beat them up, which is just pure dad. And he's wonderful about everything these days. But, uh, and and, you know, my, my sister was like, yeah, no shit. Want to go out for lunch. And my, my brother was like, yeah, (laughs) you you know, Jeremy was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, man. Of course you are. And it like, I just, it was all acceptance, but it was, I had built this up to be so big because I grew up in the 90s. I got to watch my my gay uncle try to hide his sexuality for decades. Uh, and, and I kind of assumed, you know, I grew up learning about Matthew Shepard. I grew up learning about Stonewall. I grew up, you know, researching as soon as the internet was out, trying to figure out, like, are there other people like me? And you know, growing up with the stigma in the nineties, like the F word was thrown around on the the playground. And I was like, well, I am that. And it sucks that you're using it as an insult. So I had built this up in my head for probably 20 years before I, I finally came out and everybody was like, it's 2007. That's not a big deal anymore. <laughs> going to say it is, it is nice to know that we have advanced Somewhat, it is. I mean, you know, we were just talking about how you know, nineteen fifty-two, nineteen sixty-two, uh, it's listed as a mental disorder, and that's not all that long ago. But thankfully, hopefully, slowly, we're waking up in some regards. Yeah, and, and I don't like. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to rose-colored glasses or sugarcoat what coming out means these days. Like, th- there are still extremely high high suicide and abuse rates. In, uh, towards people who are in the LGBTQ community. Um, the, the suicide rates for trans youth, if you really want to have a bad day, go look those up. Uh, it, it's astronomical and it's, it's too fucking high. So we still have a long way to go as a society. Uh, and that kind of gets me into my, <laughs> the, the second coming of queer DJ is, uh, I came out twice, and not a lot of people can say that, um, at least not a lot of people that I know. And the reason I came out twice is because when I came out as bi in 2007, the words for alternative genders didn't exist. 
I actually had to do this research uh, for work because I, I I've joined this um, pride group at work who who's you know all about making sure that there's a good safe space for for queer and gay and lesbian and bi uh, employees. And the the language that we use now in 2021 to describe the the spectrum of gender and gender identity they didn't enter even even like super liberal zeitgeist until 2016 in the US so like terms wow. like non-binary and i mean even like mark when we were growing up in the 90s transgender was not a term you know people were still calling no. them trannies and yeah, you know, it, it, it very offensive terms, and it it really hasn't been until the last like five six years that the concept that your gender identity and your chromosomal sex and your gender expression are actually three distinct entities, and that they all have value, and all of those identities are valid. Um, the, the term non-binary did not enter the zeitgeist at, in New Hampshire until like four, four years ago. I want to say, I, I think I first heard it like three years ago and you know, I, it was something that I never thought about. I always knew that I was way more effeminate than most of the men in my life. I always knew that I had zero interest in, a number of male-oriented pursuits. I've never enjoyed getting down and dirty and working with my hands. I've never really enjoyed uh, being outside and doing nature things. I, I've never really enjoyed, fuck, beer. <laughs> There's just, there were so many things <laughs> that I, and I remember like 2020 hindsight, right? Now that I'm out and I'm not out as non-binary and I understand what that means for me I can look back on my life and realize just how many awkward silences there were in conversation while I sat there trying to relate to the manly men in my life and having no fucking clue how to connect with them um you know I anybody who's met me for longer than five minutes knows that I am a fairly colorful high energy super positive person that likes arts and uh, literature and cooking and I, all of these things that I really enjoy, you know, costume making and, and sewing. And they, now in 2021, none of that shit seems particularly feminine in this, you know, liberal bubble that I live in in New Hampshire. You know, I've got... Plenty of guy friends who are e extremely accomplished cooks. I've got uh, a ton of female friends who are woodworkers. There's just the, the gender divide in the last five, ten years has really started to to kind of blur. But I also live in a very liberal, liberal, liberal bubble. And I tend to, you know, travel in social circles with like minded people. So you know, if I went outside that bubble, that, like I said, trans youth suicide rates are still very, very high. And there's, 
you know, we still have a rampant problem in this country of gay conversion therapy camps and things like that. So while I feel very privileged to have come out in a, in a good support system as non-binary and being been allowed to explore that identity before, you know, adopting it, there are people out there who can't. So um, it coming out in December was... It wasn't nearly as uh, panic-inducing as it, it was when I came out as bi in 2007. I, I had already been having these conversations for a year and a half with, you know, my sister and some close friends and, and uh, you know, my parents. And I finally, I just decided to own it and I adopted they, them pronouns. And I found myself realizing that if, I, as a 34-year-old man who, or, you know, 34-year-old individual, uh, if I can come to that conclusion and, and come out in a healthy way, living in this liberal, liberal bubble, having all of these friends who are super supportive, having family that's supportive, well, that can't be everybody's journey. That you know that that's unfortunately not everybody's going to be able to do that, and there's a lot of people uh, across our country who live in areas and homes that aren't safe. And there's been a lot of conversation in the last year about what do we do to reach out to the younger members of our community who might be in homes where they aren't accepted, and they're <laughs> deeply in the closet and. You know, there's a lot of uh, advocacy in the community about making sure that we don't lose another person to, you know, suicidal ideations and self-harm and abuse. So I, I wanted to kind of close out this very deep topic um, by sharing some resources for people um, because I could talk about this stuff for days. Um, I, I could talk about uh, seeking out queer and, and you know, uh, alternative sexuality characters in media. Uh, I, I could highlight some, some gay authors. And, and what I'll probably do is put together a, a blog post on the website and share it out on all our social media to kind of get, get people thinking. You know, I, Schitt's Creek is great, but it's not the only representation out there. So... Um, but I wanted to kind of leave it with uh, a, a few different places you can go to if you want to learn more, you want to get involved. Um, there's a, a really great institution called Equality House, uh, which is uh, that they, they actually went to the very hateful Westboro Baptist Church and they bought a couple of houses across the street and they painted one in the trans flag colors and one in the pride flag colors. Uh, oh, that is glorious. It, it's amazing. And they do a ton of community outreach and they, they help um, LGBTQ youth find safe spaces and, and get out of bad situations. So uh, if you want right now, I think they've got to go fund me up because uh, uh, they need to do some renovations on a quality house. So uh, if you're feeling... Uh, generous during Pride Month and you want to help out, uh, that's a great GoFundMe. Um, there's also the, uh, one of the, 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 one of my 
queer ancestors uh, is Sylvia Rivera, who was very, very uh, pivotal in the, the birth of the gay liberation movement and was even rumored to be at Stonewall herself. Um, she, in her name, there is a, a law project, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, uh, which was set up to help spread the message and, and support legislation that allows anybody to self-identify as whatever gender makes them feel most com- comfortable. And that's, it's seemingly a small thing until you start researching the, the, the there's been so many studies done on the mental health benefits of validation and self-identity and, um, you know, the, the decrease in suicidal ideations you, you get when, uh, when people are allowed to stand in their truth and, and, and live their authentic selves. So, um, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project is a great place to support and then uh, there's so many resources online. Uh, if you're curious, if you're one of those people who just can't keep that damn alphabet straight, um, GLAD has some really great resources online for uh, the, the alphabet soup that is sexuality and sexual identities as well as uh, gender identities. And uh, both of them are, are quite comprehensive. I'll be honest, every time I look, I, I, I read one that I, was always there, but I just hadn't quite gotten around to understanding it, and I learned something new. Um, and, and seek out the, you know, the, the, the Bisexual Resource Center, and uh, there's a great website called The Affirmative Couch where they, they just talk about LGBTQ topics and help people understand them. Uh, seek out um, LGBTQ safe spaces in your area and and throw some money at them. Help them kind of signal boost what they're doing because we really can't be losing anymore. It's it's too late. We, we need to do better. Amen to that. But ending on that sober note, but happy Pride Month, everybody. It, it's... As much as I talk about the need to to do and be better, we've we have come a long way, and it's important to during Pride Month have pride in the progress we've made. And uh, as we start to walk out of this pandemic, you're going to start to see pride events uh, popping back up in your city. I think uh, next week Portsmouth is having their first pride event in about two years. So. Um, Go out there and, and be proud. Yeah, you know, it's it's 50-50. You know, we take the time, uh, celebrate the gains that have been made, but at the same time recognize that we still have a long way to go. We do. All right. Well, I believe that is going to be all for this week. So thank you very much for joining us this episode and every episode. Uh, we're one step closer to episode 50, The Big Spectacular. I may open uh, the Infinity Bottle for episode 50. Oh, that's exciting. We might do a live taste test for, for uh, the Infinity Bottle. Uh, don't forget, check us out on our website. Check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, List Notes, Caster, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn Radio, Pandora, apparently another alphabet soup of just a million different apps. Apparently on your Roku... Uh, 
Yes, apparently we're on your Roku. Also, shout out, you know, I, I know all because we collect massive amounts of data. We have uh, two listeners in Kansas, so shout out to you people in Kansas. Yeah. Send us, send us some goddamn barbecue. <laughs> uh, anyway, or at least me. I'm fat. He's skinny. I, I like barbecue. Uh, so that's that. Uh, big shout out to Nuno Henry Silva for our intro and outro music. It's Prime Day today as we're recording this. Go buy his goddamn book. It's on Amazon. Oh, it's so good, too. Uh, uh, you know, we are on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're, uh, we have a Gmail. It's the Wit and Whiskey cast on everything. There's no H in Wit. There is an E in Whiskey. I think I got it that time. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I, th- I think the bit might, might, you know, we finally come full circle, 43 episodes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I didn't listen to last week's episode because last week we were talking about doing a topic and then we said, oh, no, wait, it's still June. And we switched. I don't remember what that other one was. <laughs> well, I think there was rumors <laughs> that we might get, get uh, a potential guest for Formula One. Oh, yes, Nick. Uh, Nick may, uh, is interested in joining us. I did talk to him the other night, and he has no problems doing it, so we'll just have to sit down and see if he has a day free in the next week coming, and uh, you will get to meet. I mean, you know, I don't know if we have the anointing power, but, I mean, he's basically the unofficial eighth man of Team Leroy. <laughs> it's true. Let's be brutally honest here. And, uh, yeah, we might do a nice panel discussion on Formula One, and I think it's going to be kind of similar to this. I will bring the history and the technical jargon, and Nick is a relatively new fan, and he is excited and happy and enjoys the sport and is not nearly as jaded as I am. And I've heard of cars. (laughs) And you've heard of cars, and I think you've heard of some of the brand names that race in Formula One, so you will be able to keep us moving along and... Try to keep the uh, locker room language to a minimum. Because <laughs> Nick and I are both children, especially once we get together. That's why I have the editing powers. Yes, that's why we let you edit these shows. So, <laughs> yes, tentatively we will say Formula One and Whiskey next week, which is good because it's always been accused of being a wine and cheese episode. <laughs> so, until then, happy Pride Month. Uh, happy belated Father's Day to any fathers listening. And... Uh, my name is Mark Rossetti. For DJ Gagan, my man, the myth, the legend, salute. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>